I thought that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Also, I noticed that uh, you know, uh, along with the the, uh, the Mead project, that uh, you you you've got something going on uh, Petersburg and the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia's two front war. Is that something that's ongoing as well? Yeah, I'm looking at that. Um, 1864 to talk about the dueling campaigns in Virginia. So there'll be some overlap with my research I'm finding in the Mead book for the 64 Overland campaign, mm -hmm. um, which would be nice. The Mead book is the front and center project. So that's getting sure. the bulk of my time. And then this one's a little bit further on the back burner, but ongoing. Yeah, I, I, I know when uh, I saw you on the C-SPAN uh, program, with Peter Carmichael that uh, they were after you on the Mead book. No. <laughs> I'm going, I know. And Pete's, yeah, Pete's fun to talk. I'm going as fast as I can. I spend almost every day working on Mead. I, I try to make a point to commit some time of my day every day to work on it. So slow well, and steady. I know what you mean. I uh, The first uh, battlefield tour I ever went on was I think around 1990 or 1991, and uh, Dave Heinz, may he rest in peace, who was a great Civil War educator out in Southwest Missouri, wrote the book on the Battle of Carthage. Uh, he was doing a tour of Shiloh, so I attended, and Glenn Robertson was uh, the tour, our, our guide, and we had a little symposium as part of that program, and the historians were there, I, I forget, who all they were, John Marslack, I think was there and Grady McWhiney and, and some others. And everybody was chiding him about his Chickamauga book. And you know, that thing didn't come out until what, 2018 or so, 2019. Yeah. So I can only imagine, you know, the pressure people in the business, his business were putting on him to get his Chickamauga book down. I, I, I think a lot of us uh, in the round table probably have the book, I have not, I have not started it yet, of course, because we here in Chicago, especially in Chicago, been, have been overwhelmed by Dave Powell uh, and his Chickamauga yeah. stuff. And he spoke last month. So uh, although not not on uh, not on Chickamauga, actually, he spoke on the 1864 Shenandoah campaign uh, uh, himself. But nonetheless, uh, yes, I, I, I can see that uh, that uh, this is, uh, you know, this is easier said than done. Uh, all of us who are engaged in any kind of profession where we have to do writing, it's, uh, you know, it's not, not as simple as it looks. Yeah, they say on average to write a history book, you know, a scholarly study, at least, it takes 10 years from conception to the time that it's on the shelf. Because even when I'm done with it, it takes 18 to 24 months until I turn it over to the press and it's ready for consumers to buy. So at least another two years, even when I'm done with it until I can see it on, on the shelf. Yeah. So it's, yeah. A, it's definitely a labor of love. Yeah. And I, I noticed that uh, your book on uh, Gettysburg, uh, uh, you know, uh, the making management memory uh, published in 2014. So, that meant throughout that period when you were in grad school, even you were probably working on that. No. Well, that, yeah, that was my dissertation. So I finished my PhD in okay. 2010, right. which, and that was my dissertation. So then oh, okay. I revised it okay. and then sent that off to Tennessee and it came out in 2014, as you noted. Okay. So, yeah, so that, well, that, then that wouldn't make sense, but, I, but my, my basic supposition, I guess was right. that You were working on it. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. obviously. Uh, and, uh, 
who, uh, by the way, I noticed that you got the Batchelder Award for the Batchelder Cottington Award. Who, who uh, presents that? A Civil War Roundtable in New Jersey. New Jersey, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have we have yet to do something like that, but uh, we're we're having we're having an executive meeting coming up at the end of the month or early next month, and uh, I, it's my idea that maybe we should. Uh, develop some kind of award for Ed, because Ed was with us so many years, uh, long before I joined the group, uh, leading uh, leading tours for the Civil War, uh, Civil War Roundtable, uh, over 40 years of leading tours for us. And I, I thought there are other Ed Barr's types of awards, but we, we, we could probably, we should think about doing that. We always raise money for Ed, uh, we had uh, raised money for, uh, Ed to uh, make to uh, deserving uh, projects and entities when we we would go on our tours to you know to uh, to, to donate to battlefield preservation. Uh, I don't know if we'll keep up that tradition now that uh, he's no longer with us, but I, I suspect we will. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but nonetheless, uh, those are two good names, Batch Elder and Coddington. I. Uh, Every year around June 30th or July 1st, I pull, pull it out. I think I have three copies of it, but I pull one of them out. And uh, I always read a few random chapters. Just, just I don't read, reread the whole book, but I probably have read the book now four, five, six times, a uh, little bit at a time every year around the 1st of July. And last year, and that's what got me interested in, in Mead was I read the last chapter. I had not read the last chapter in that book for many years. And so it intrigued me. Uh, and so uh, I, I've been delving into the, you know, to the, to the so-called pursuit uh, issue, but- uh, Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And it's been getting a lot of ink the last years with all these uh, different books. I've, I, uh, I had the, the, the Masterson Brown and the, the uh, I forget who was it, Petruzzi and Wittenberg, uh, the book on my shelf for years. But the, so finally, I, I brought them out and started reading them in conjunction with uh, uh, with that recent book by Ryan. So uh, I won't pressure you on the meat book, but because I guess you're getting enough pressure as it is. Uh, but uh, but uh, General Mead uh, is one of those characters who probably didn't get the attention he deserved over time. And uh, maybe it's, you know, it's time he did. Well, we're getting close to the bewitching hour here. So I'll uh, get ready to uh, see us going. Welcome everyone. It is January 8th. 2021. I think too many people are sad to see 2020 gone, uh, but here we are at the 798th regular meeting of uh, the Civil War Roundtable. We have with us tonight Jennifer Murray. She is an assistant teaching professor at Oklahoma State, Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, who is, uh, in my estimation, after not only merely reading her uh, CV, but seeing uh, uh, her on uh, C-SPAN programs and reading uh, most recently her essay in Upon the Fields of Battle. Very good book. 
many uh, interesting articles in there. Uh, hers, uh, uh, hers and Kenneth Noe's, I think were the two best. Uh, Jennifer studied under Kenneth Noe at Auburn where she got her PhD. Uh, she's currently working on a book on uh, General Meade, uh, Meade at War, and we all will be looking forward uh, to that publication. Uh, but she also uh, is author of uh, a book which, which has uh, received quite a bit of, uh, of favorable uh, com uh, comment of the making management and memory of the Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2014. Uh, she received uh, the Batch Elder Coddington Award for that in 2014. And she's also shortlisted uh, for uh, prestigious awards uh, for, the, for the same work, the Lincoln Prize, uh, the Douglas Salto Freeman Award, and most prominently, I think, uh, Tom Watson Brown Prize. Uh, Jennifer also is author of The Civil War Begins, uh, uh, which is a publication uh, from the uh, Center for Military History Publications. It's a relatively uh, short document. I think it, it, it was published uh, in conjunction with the sesquicentennial, uh, which uh, brought out uh, volumes on uh, Civil War, uh, Civil War uh, military history. Jennifer uh, was an interpreter ranger at uh, Gettysburg during the period 2002-2010, and she's written numerous articles uh, in uh, all the publications with which we are familiar uh, uh, in the round in the round table, including uh, Civil War history published by Kent State and the. Uh, 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 civil, uh, I forget the title of North, University of North Carolina Press, uh, the uh, Civil War era uh, periodical. So uh, with, uh, without further ado, I will uh, give you Jennifer Murray, who will be speaking to us uh, tonight about General Meade and his role in the Army uh, of the Potomac. Jennifer. Thank you for that kind introduction, Mark, and thank you for inviting me to speak to the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. You know, prior to the pandemic, I had never heard of Zoom, which I suspect is true for many of you. And now we are all Zoom experts. I talk with my students and teach some of my classes this way. I had a department meeting earlier this afternoon and saw all of my colleagues on, on Zoom. So this is um, become the new norm, but hopefully not for too much longer with better things on the on the horizon. I'm going to screen share with you guys um, my PowerPoint. So let me try that and we'll see if you guys can see my PowerPoint. Mark, my screen says that I'm viewing um, Jan's screen. Is there a way to maybe exit out of that and or or let me view mine? Please? Yeah, I, I don't know. What I'm seeing is a uh, just a, a a Zoom box. I'm going to x that out. See what comes up. Oh, yeah, this is launching me into the meetings. I'll I'll, I'll ask Mark. Mark Kunis is is uh, is with us. Mark may have some suggestions. 
Uh, hold on a second. I think I can actually override it. Oh, there we go. There you are. There you are. Um, does that look good? Oh, beautiful. You can see. Okay, good. All right, perfect. All right, technology is working. We got Zoom. I've got about um, 45 or so slides to share with you guys. Uh, pretty nice PowerPoint. You'll see some familiar images, I suspect, and then maybe some not so familiar images as we walk through George Meade's Civil War career tonight. So I'm glad to spend my Friday night talking about George Gordon Meade. Uh, Mark mentioned in the introduction, this is the book that I'm currently working on. Um, if everything goes well, I'm hopeful that it will be on the shelves for you all to buy come 2023, which of course is the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. So the title of my talk tonight is The Victor of Gettysburg, and I suspect if you know a little bit about George Meade, you could talk to me about Meade and his role in the Gettysburg campaign. And we'll spend time talking about that tonight. But what I really wanna talk about is Meade's entire Civil War career. And I wanna shed some light on what he was doing prior to June 28th of 63 when he got command in the Army of the Potomac and talk to you about what it was like to be a soldier under Meade's command. Mark, you mentioned in the in your introduction and in kind of in your comments and everyone on the screen heard this. Meade's one of those Civil War generals who for the longest time has been overshadowed. Um, certainly overshadowed by Grant. This is a painting you've probably seen before, at least um, a duplicate of, if not the original, it hangs in Washington, DC. This is done in 1865, and you can see many of the famous Union generals in this painting. I can toggle over, I think you guys can see my cursor. So here we can find Grant. And if we look to the right, this is Sherman, of course. And then to his right, right there, is George Meade. So at least for this European painter, George Meade figured prominently, pretty prominently, in preservation of the Union. And if you scan the painting, you can see scads of other Union generals. You can see Sheridan, you can see um, Hancock, you can see Rosecrans, you can see the pantheon of Union generals. But very quickly, George Gordon Meade the victor of Gettysburg, whom many people consider the turning point of the American Civil War, fades from popular discourse or our collective consciousness. And there's reasons for that, and, and we'll chat about that at the end. So let me give you an anecdote, um, a humorous one, I think. If you visit Gettysburg, there's a lot of tourist um, trinket souvenir kind of shops. You can find them on Steinware Avenue in spades. And a few years ago, I was doing some shopping in one of these stores and I came across this display for sale. And if you look real closely, it's the Battle of Gettysburg. There's a um, replicate painting here of some of the combat action and it's the mini balls at the bottom. It has got Robert E. Lee on the right and then on the left of a painting of the Battle of Gettysburg is Ulysses S. Grant. Now look at the price tag, that's 75 bucks for that. Right, so it's either a great deal or not. I was so tempted to buy it, but, but I didn't. But it underscores a very important point 
which is for many people, George Meade has been removed from our Civil War conversation. Mark mentioned that I worked at Gettysburg from 2002 to 2010 during my undergrad, my MA, my PhD. So I would talk with thousands, tens of thousands of people from in the United States, all over the country, and, and then ultimately even around the world. You know, people come to Gettysburg from all over the world. And what I found is that so few of them had, a, had an understanding of Meade. You know, they would come to Gettysburg and they were convinced that, that in fact, Grant was here. You know, no, Grant's at Vicksburg. He was taking care of a Confederate army out in Mississippi. So you are familiar with Meade, of course. Your Civil War studies has given you some sense of who this man was, but by and large, he's been relegated to a secondary or even tertiary role in our Civil War conversation. Think of your own individual bookshelves or think about the biographies on Grants or on Robert E. Lee, and there's even more stuff coming out on, on Lee very soon with Gelzo's new work. But the last comprehensive biography on George Meade came out in the Civil War Centennial. It's um, called Meade at Gettysburg and it's written by Freeman Cleves. And that came out in the early 1960s. Now there's some people who've written on Meade more recently and in smaller sorts of ways. So what my work is intended to, to do, the gap it's going to fill, is provide us with a comprehensive study of George Meade. So it's a, a life to death narrative of a man who was intimately important and responsible for preservation in the Union. So here he is, look at, look at baby George Meade. Um, that's perhaps one of the most interesting pictures I'll show you tonight. George Meade is born on December 31st, 1815. So just a few days ago, my husband and I got a George Meade birthday cake. We do this every year. He's born in Cadiz, Spain. And Meade and his family will move back to the United States. So you probably know him more as being a Pennsylvanian. He's from Philadelphia. And Meade will graduate from West Point. Um, he's kind of a middling sort of student, not distinguished in any sort of way. And he receives his commission with the topographical engineers, um, kind of the illustrious elite unit of the United States Antebellum Army. Meade will see service in the Mexican War. This, of course, begins in 1846 and will last for two years until 1848. And he sees fighting in places like Monterey. That's a sketch that I have there on the slide. And he performs well. You know, this is an opportunity for him to meet some of the individuals who he will be working with and serving with come 1861. And he performs pretty well in Mexico. In addition to his combat service in Mexico, and this is taken right out from his experiences at topographical engineers, Meade is gonna have a pretty prominent pre-Civil War career in the construction of multiple lighthouses in the United States. Now this not, might not be one of the, the more sexy kind of parts of Meade's Civil War or pre-Civil War career, but he will design the Barnegat Lighthouse in New Jersey. He's gonna design lighthouses in Florida. 
He will oversee the surveying of several of the Great Lakes in the 1850s, which is um, super complicated, really mathematically involved work, really um, sophisticated work. And he finds this work um, really rewarding. So in the years leading up to the Civil War, the 1850s, when the sectional conflict between the North and the South is, is really escalating, George Meade and his family are living in Detroit. And Meade is a, a young officer, he's a captain in the topographical engineers. So when the South secedes, Lincoln is elected in November, 1860. Fort Sumter is fired on in April of 1861. George Meade is watching all of this from Detroit and he's getting really anxious about whether or not he will have a role to play in the American Civil War. He sees several of his good friends and the topographical engineers and other branches of the antebellum army starting to get commissions. They're being called east to lead troops in these armies that are forming in Washington, D.C. But Meade yet has not got the nod. He hasn't yet been appointed. One of the things that really struck me in my research is how important George Meade's wife is to his Civil War career. And he marries a woman named Margareta Sargent. And her father is the vice presidential candidate for Henry Clay. So his wife, Margareta, comes from a really prominent political Philadelphian family. And she uses some of her connections to help her husband get a commission in the US Army. So this is Detroit, 1861. This is where Meade is languishing. He's fearing that he's not gonna have a part in this war, which everyone thinks is gonna be over by Christmas. But then on August 31st, 1861, Meade will get his commission. He's promoted to Brigadier General and he will be commanding a brigade in the Pennsylvania Reserves. So Meade sends his family back to Philadelphia and he will board a train and he will report for duty in Washington, D.C. and ultimately meet his troops, these Pennsylvanians, at their camp in Tenleytown, Maryland, which is just a few miles outside of Washington. The man in the image is George McCall, um, Brigadier General George McCall. Um, I was born in, in Pennsylvania, so I, I claim a little bit of um, nativism to Pennsylvania. And this is an opportunity to say really great things about the Union soldiers from Pennsylvania. When the war breaks out, you know, states get their quotas for soldiers in the Union Army. Illinois gets their quota, New York gets their quota, Pennsylvania gets theirs. And in Pennsylvania's case, so many men so quickly respond to Lincoln's call for volunteers that they have more men ready to serve beyond the quota. So the Pennsylvania Reserves are units that are initially outfitted 
at the state expense, the governor of Pennsylvania's Andrew Curtin, will take on the cost of this unit. And then ultimately they will be mobilized into the Army of the Potomac. So Meade commands a brigade. And I wanna say one other comment here before I move on to my next slide. The Pennsylvania Reserves are one of the fiercest, most battle-hardened units in any Civil War Army. And I just had an article come out in Civil War Times last month on the reserves. This is a unit that will produce not only George Meade, but it also produces John Fulton Reynolds. Reynolds is a brigade commander at the start of the war in the Pennsylvania Reserves. This unit also produces Edward Ord, who will go on to be one of Grant's right-hand men through the entirety of the war. So this is a really crack shot, really experienced elite unit, and they prove themselves time and time again. So Meade comes and he meets his men. Now this is a professional soldier seeing these volunteers from different counties in Pennsylvania, and he writes home to his wife, and he gripes constantly about how awful he thinks they are. Soldiers, they are not in any sense of the word. This is October. The next month he says, I fear no amount of personal energy or effort will do what is right to make these men soldiers. So he's grumbling about them. That's pretty common. He's a professional soldier. Um, Reynolds grumbles about his volunteers. Many of these professional soldiers do, but he's gonna have a chance to lead his men, his brigade, into their baptism of fire in the Peninsula Campaign. So you're familiar with the trajectory of the war in the East. This, of course, is George McClellan, who will lead the famous On to Richmond campaign with an attempt to land, at that time, the largest army assembled on the tip of the Virginia Peninsula, down here at Fort Monroe, march up the peninsula and capture, you can see my cursor, and you find Richmond, Virginia. Meade and the Pennsylvania Reserves are going to fight um, in the Seven Days Campaign. And this is outside of Richmond on the east side, a period, of, a week's period of intense fighting. Meade's Pennsylvanians will fight at places like Gaines Mill. This is June 27, 1862. And they will fight at places like Glendale three days later on June 30. Seven days, this is Stonewall Jackson's big campaign east of Richmond, that will ultimately arrest or stop the Union drive from capturing Richmond. And at the Battle of Glendale, George Meade will be wounded. Now, when we get to talk about Gettysburg, one of the interpretations about Meade at Gettysburg is that he's very cautious and he lacks aggression. And that's not the case um, at all. And it's certainly not how Meade leads prior to Gettysburg. This is a Brigadier General who is at the front leading with his men. And he's wounded twice. Um, he gets hit near, near um, basically in his left arm under the armpit. And then a second shot um, penetrates closer into his, his gut or his abdomen, nicks through, nicks his kidney and then launches in his back. Uh, Meade's gonna be carried off the battlefield. He'll be thrown into this, um, this uh, mess cart and shuttled back to see 
immediate medical attention. And his wounds are pretty serious. Um, he ultimately is going to be evacuated, to kind of use a modern term, he's going to be evacuated off of the peninsula. And when he passes through Baltimore, Maryland, on his way back home to Philadelphia to recover, um, residents in Baltimore think that his condition is so bad that he will succumb to his wounds. This is Meade's letter on July the 1st. He's writing to his wife and he says, my doctor says my wounds are not dangerous, though they require immediate and constant medical attention, which is like the, <laughs> sort of the greatest Meade quote. They're not dangerous, but they require immediate and constant attention. Meade will pass blood in his urine for weeks and uh, months after this. Um, severe, he wound up recovering um, for just under 40 days in Philadelphia. And he's hearing of the failed Peninsula campaign. He's really anxious to get back to his men. So he finally feels like he's recovered enough and he's gonna be ready to lead his men into the fall campaigns of 1862. One of the things that I've learned about George Meade is that this is a man who is incredibly narcissistic is a um, callous sort of way to say it, um, albeit true, he's, he's very proud. And he feels like he should receive recognition for the duties and the accomplishments that he's done. Not only that he should, but that his unit should also. And this is gonna be real important to Meade as he tries to climb up the ladder to get promoted. So here he is writing his wife on September the 3rd. You know, I've, I've, I've done my duty, my services shall be that I should claim command of a division. So he's back. The Union Army will fight in Northern Virginia at Manassas. The Second Battle of Manassas or the Second Battle of Bull Run. Uh, Meade's guys will have a role to play there. This is command under um, John Pope, of course. But the real big campaign in the fall of 62, and the one that really shapes Meade's upward trajectory, is the Maryland campaign. This is a map you've probably seen. This is a Civil War Trust. So Robert E. Lee, success off of victory at Second Manassas, will make a risky gambit and invade Maryland for a variety of reasons. This is a big roll of the dice, the crossing of the Rubicon, as we've heard so many times in the last couple of days. He's going to move into Maryland. And the governor of Pennsylvania is getting nervous that the Confederate Army is going to cross over the Mason-Dixon line and Harrisburg, Philadelphia might be threatened. Governor of Pennsylvania is Andrew Curtin, this guy here on the right. So Curtin wants a general to command the Pennsylvania militia, and he asks for John Fulton Reynolds. Reynolds doesn't want to go, but Reynolds will command the Pennsylvania militia, leaving the division command to George Meade. So Meade has the opportunity in the Maryland campaign 
to command a division for the first time. And he performs brilliantly. Back to that notion about me not being aggressive. I'm going to argue in my book, and I've already written the chapter on the Antietam campaign. I'm going to argue in my book that Meade's finest tactical day, tactical day, comes at South Mountain. And if y'all have been to Antietam, maybe some of you have gotten off the beaten path a little bit and went up to visit South Mountain. That terrain is the diff most difficult, rugged terrain that the Army of the Potomac experienced in the war. And Meade commanding his division will capture Turner's Gap on September 14, 1862. His Pennsylvania reserves are in the Union Army's first corps, which is now commanded by Joseph Hooker. And they capture Turner's Gap. If, if you've been there, just imagine that rugged, awful, craggy sort of terrain with all the ravines. It's incredibly difficult for command and control. They capture that from Confederate Daniel Harvey Hill, and they push the Confederates off Turner's Gap. Hill later writes, and Hill never has anything good to say about Union generals, but he gives a nod to Meade, and he says, Meade was one of our most dreaded foes. He was always in deadly earnest, and he avoided trifling. So Meade does well. He does brilliant at Turner's Gap. But the big fight's yet to come. So September 17, 1862, is the bloodiest day in American history, the Battle of Antietam. And Hooker's First Corps, you guys can see my, my cursor, they're going to fight on the northern part of the battlefield here. Um, they're gonna kick off the fight even prior to September 17. There's gonna be some action the previous day. And then early in the morning on the 17th, Meade and the First Corps of the Pennsylvania Reserves will see incredibly fierce fighting um, in places like the cornfield against the Texans and along the Hagerstown Pike down towards the Dunker Church. Meade exhibits a leadership style where he places himself at the front of the fight. And one of the things I'm doing in my research is reading any account I can get my hands on in archives all across the country by soldiers in Meade's command. And they write about seeing him at the front of the lines. They write about him being at the front in the thick of the fight, like riding with hail, you know, the bullets coming upon him. There they see George Meade. And in the fight of Antietam, uh, Meade is riding his horse, um, his favorite horse, Old Baldy. And he's going to be at the front of the line, and he is going to be hit. Um, as he says to his wife here, by grape shot, giving me a severe contusion on the thigh, but it did not break the skin. Meade escapes um, a serious wound at Antietam, but his horse, his mount, is not quite so lucky. And this is the only photograph I've ever seen of old Baldy. This is Meade's horse. He buys it in the fall of 61. Um, old Baldy. And, and of course, I'm biased here. Old Baldy is the coolest of the Civil War horses. This guy himself has a fantastic history, a, a great story. And here in Antietam, he's going to be shot um, in the neck. 
and Meade fears that the wound is fatal. So he sends some of his staffers to go out and um, kind of get his um, materials off of the horse, get his saddle off of him. And they find that old Baldy is, um, he's alive and well. He's, he's up on the um, horizon near where Meade had left him chomping on some grass. So he's, he's gonna recover a spirited old horse. And it's, um, it's funny because, you know, you think of George Meade's personality and you think of kind of these misinterpretations or myths about him. And you hear that he's this goggle-eyed snapping turtle, that he's irascible and he's temperamental. And he is, and, and he's, he's certainly all those things, but he's also very compassionate and kind. And he has this real deep soft spot for his horse. Um, he writes a lot about old Baldy and will ride him through 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg until Old Baldy will be hit on July the 2nd um, down along Cemetery Ridge. And that will be the last that Meade will ride Old Baldy into combat. He sends him off um, basically to retirement um, <laughs> to a farm outside of Philadelphia. So for Meade, the Maryland campaign really pegs him as one of the shining stars in the Army of the Potomac. He's a little grumbly that the Pennsylvania Reserves haven't seen enough media attention, if you will, that he wants a little more press or a little more respect for them. But Meade has definitely caught the eye of his fellow officers and has solidified his place as one of the best, most competent and aggressive commanders in the Army of the Potomac. The Maryland campaign ends with, of course, the removal of George McClellan. And we might maybe have time to talk about this in the, the Q&A, but McClellan and Meade have a very tight um, relationship. Um, politically, they think of war in the same way. So Meade finds McClellan's removal um, disappointing, and he thinks that Lincoln has overstepped. These personal intrigues and political meddling make me sad for the future. And in McClellan's place will come Ambrose Burnside. Now I've, I've kind of promised you the greatest hits of Meade's Civil War career, so I won't get into details of all the battles that he's in, but I wanna highlight a few and then we'll get into the, the Army of the Potomac. And I'm, I'm mindful of my times, so we're, we're square. I told you that I think that Meade fights best tactically at South Mountain. My second, estimation of where he performs the best is at Fredericksburg. And this is a campaign that is characterized by enormous blunders by the Union High Command. It's the one that will ruin Ambrose Burnside's reputation. But at Fredericksburg, Meade and the Pennsylvania Reserves, this is the unit that will pierce the Confederate line held by Stonewall Jackson at Prospect Hill. And Meade finds an opportunity to exploit that line, but for a lack of reinforcements, the Pennsylvania Reserves will have to fall back. And Fredericksburg with, I think about 13,000 Union casualties will be a horrific blunder, but not for George Meade. Again, aggressiveness on the battlefield. Burnside's gonna be replaced by Joseph Hooker, Hooker has been campaigning for this billet for quite some time, and Fighting Joe will lead the Union Army into battle 
at Chancellorsville. Now, this is a multi-day fight. And suffice to say that this is a campaign, again, where Meade demonstrates aggressiveness. He has command now of a corps. George Meade will com take command of the Union Army's Fifth Corps, and he's now a major general. He's promoted on November 29th, 1862. So the Fifth Corps, he's urging Hooker to be aggressive at different times during the fight at Chancellorsville. Hooker will call his generals together in a council of war and solicit their opinion about what to do. And ultimately, he will pull back. And the Chancellorsville campaign, much like Fredericksburg, ends as this kind of quizzical, bungled operation. And Meade in this campaign had been arguing for Hooker to be more aggressive. He has voiced his aggression consistently against Hooker. And in doing so, Meade is, it's not, it's not intentional because he, he doesn't want command of the Army of the Potomac, but he's establishing himself as being Hooker's successor. And here he says to his wife, he says, I don't have any political influence. I don't think I have fear or worry that I'm gonna be called on to command the Union Army. But in fact, Meade's fellow corps commanders, like Henry Slocum on the left or John Sedgwick on the right, have already said that they are willing to serve under George Meade. Some, in fact, will go to Washington, D.C. and say that they are willing to serve under Meade. So the seeds are planted in Lincoln's mind in mid-May. So we have an army that has a lot of dysfunction in the high command. This is James Biddle. He's gonna be Meade's staffer and one of his greatest supporters during the, the war and after the Civil War. No finer officer than Meade. We have a lot of dysfunction in the Union Army's high command. And, and as you know, Hooker's gonna offer his resignation to Lincoln. They get into a disagreement about what to do with the troops at Harper's Ferry. And this man, James Hardy boards a train and will arrive to George Meade's headquarters at about 3 a.m. on June 28, 1863. And Meade, um, he's sleeping, of course. Hardy walks into the tent and he gets, he wakes George Meade, and, and Meade very famously thinks that he's going to be arrested or relieved of command. And this is because his fallout with Hooker is, is so terrible. Um, just so much fallout with Hooker. He, he writes he's at open war with Hooker, but Hardy's not there to do either. And in fact, he gives him the most important command, which is 90,000 men commanding the Army of the Potomac. Every year on June 28th, um, I usually spend my summers back east. Um, we'll go down to where Meade takes command of the Union Army. You can do that. It's right outside of Frederick. Um, this is one of my photographs. And there's this marker here where a couple hundred yards away, Meade will take command of the Army of the Potomac. On the eve of what, a, what will be the, the biggest, perhaps most important campaign in the American Civil War. So let's walk through, in the time we have left, some of the kind of highlights or the key themes of Meade's command of the Army of the Potomac. Reaction to him in command is mixed. Um, Union soldiers for sure, 
are tired of the change of command. In just 1863 alone, they have seen three commanders, Burnside, Hooker, and now Meade. And they're on the, the eve of what they know will be one of the biggest, most important clashes in the American Civil War. We can talk, and uh, Mark mentioned this, um, maybe about the pursuit. I can talk at great lengths about that. I've, I've got a whole chapter on it. Meade at Gettysburg performs very well. Um, July the 2nd, I think, is Meade's finest day as commander of the Army of the Potomac, July the 2nd. And by July the 3rd, with the repulsive Pickett's charge, the Union victory at Gettysburg is secure. This image on the right is the Philadelphia Inquirer. It says victory. And then if you look at the bottom under the flag, it says Waterloo eclipsed. So they're positioning George Meade to have the same kind of um, final culminating assault, much like Napoleon suffered at Waterloo in 1815. And that's part of the reason why the pursuit is so anticlimactic, because Meade is not able for a variety of reasons, not able to deliver that culminating blow to Robert E. Lee. And by July 14, the Army of Northern Virginia has escaped, as we say, and I, I really dislike that phrase, that word has escaped across the Potomac River, and the Gettysburg campaign ends with this frustration. And through the fall of 1863, Meade and Lee will, will dance, uh, so to say. They'll maneuver around Virginia, um, big campaign at Mine Run in the fall. And Meade's reputation, it's, it's like this immediate thrust into power where they're comparing Gettysburg to Waterloo. And July 15, a newspaper in Vermont thinks that Meade should be the next president of the United States. He has this instantaneous rise to fame. Mothers are naming their children after him who were born in the late summer or fall of 63. And then his career really kind of bottoms out and his reputation, I'll say, kind of bottoms out through a variety of, of reasons. Meade here is in the center. The campaigns through 63, this is in Culpeper, Virginia, are anticlimactic. And what is really going to start to shape Meade's position and, and his reputation is when Congress investigates Gettysburg. If you're familiar with the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, this is formed in 1861. And in 1864 March, they investigate Meade and his leadership at Gettysburg. This is Zachariah Chandler who's one of the leading antagonists. Um, he's a senator from Michigan, and he's no friend of George Meade. And this man on the right, of course, or our left, rather, needs no introduction. This is Dan Sickles, who will be one of the, um, if not the person most responsible for shaping Meade's reputation. Sickles will start the um, testimony. He takes a lot of credit at Gettysburg to himself. And he claims that Meade did not want to fight at Gettysburg, that he wanted to retreat, and that the Union Army there won, not because of Meade, but in spite of it. People like Dan Butterfield will echo these sentiments, and Meade 
now in the the winter, this is March of 64, has to defend himself against these allegations. He calls his detractors a class of vultures. So if you can just kind of imagine the imagery like Sickles and Butterfield, he likens to vultures. Um, I guess the question is what what the carcass is that they're they're eating upon. Timing here is important. This is March of 64. This is the same time that Ulysses S. Grant will be brought east. He will be promoted to lieutenant general, and he will take command of all Union armies. Nominally, of course, Meade stays in command of the Army of the Potomac, but this is a layer. This is the overshadowing of Grant to Meade. You've probably seen this photograph before. This is Grant standing, and he's looking over the shoulder. You see my arrow of George Meade. They're reviewing maps right prior to the outset of the fight, the wilderness, physically looking over his shoulder. So when the Overland campaign kicks off, it's Grant's campaign. Now, some of Meade's legacy and how he's perceived in 1864 is his own fault. And there's a famous moment in the Overland campaign where a newspaper reporter named Edward Cropsey writes a pretty scathing critique of Meade's leadership at the wilderness, partly true, partly embellished. Meade reads this newspaper and he's outraged that he's been portrayed this way. He calls Cropsey in and he demands an explanation. And what Meade ends up doing is taking Cropsey and he puts him on a, a mule. He has him ride backwards and he literally drums him out of camp. He will have um, different Army of the Potomac bands play funeral dirges and a sign is hung around Cropsey's chest that says Libler of the press and out he's drummed out by Meade's doing. Now Cropsey is gonna get together with other Northern newspaper correspondents and he says, Anything good that happens in the Army of the Potomac, you write about it and attribute it to Grant. Anything that's negative or blundering in the Army of the Potomac, you attribute that to Meade. And you can see this in the newspapers through the Overland campaign. Meade, of course, handles this very poorly, and it shapes his reputation. And by 1865, when the war is coming to an end and we're out to Appomattox, um, it's not that Meade doesn't have a role in the Overland campaign and it's hard to disentangle him from, from Grant. This is a, a big question that I'm dealing with to see how much Meade actually plays a role. But you've seen this image before and you know that George Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac, is not in the parlor at the McLean house. Those are Grant's men. Meade several miles, um, basically holding the Army of the Potomac just in case Lee does not surrender. So for George Meade, the American Civil War ends uh, with a degree of frustration, with a degree of frustra personal frustration for him. He will take the Army of the Potomac and lead it in the Grand Review. Um, this is the big multi-day celebration in Washington. You can see some famous faces here. You can see my cursor. This is this is Grant here. 
This is Andrew Johnson here. And then right here is George Gordon Meade. And Meade will ride out leading the Army of the Potomac. And you've probably heard this story before that cheers erupt amongst the tens of thousands of people there saying, Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Gettysburg. Meade stays in the Union Army, or now the Federal Army, United States Army, um, after the war. And he will have a little bit of a role to play in Reconstruction. And he finds himself um, down in Georgia and then ultimately back in Philadelphia. But one of the reasons that Meade is not as well known as other Civil War generals, in my estimation, is because he dies so soon after the war. Um, he dies on November 6th, 1872 of pneumonia. And if you read his doctor's um, report, his, his death report, it's pneumonia, no doubt, aggravated by the kind of the lingering wounds that he sustained on the peninsula. Here he is in old age. This might not be a, um, an image that you've seen before. And then if you visit Philadelphia, this is the house that Meade lives in. It's on um, Delancey Street. There's a placard that the Pennsylvania Historical Commission puts up here. Um, so you can see this, it's a, a kind of a modern looking building today. So he's born in 1815 and he dies in 1872. He was still on active duty, so his funeral's a, um, a pretty big deal. Um, General McDowell will oversee the uh, First Manassas fame. He will oversee all the details. He will be buried in Philadelphia. There's a ceremony at St. Mark's Church, and then there's a big procession through the streets of Philadelphia. He's put on a, um, a schooner that takes him up the Schuylkill River to where he lays at rest in the Laurel Hill Cemetery. Old Baldy, the horse I mentioned earlier, um, he's brought out of retirement and Old Baldy will follow George Meade's casket, um, riderless in the procession. If you get to Philly, visit Laurel Hill Cemetery. This is George Meade's tombstone, a uh, very simple, Tombstone, very much like George Meade, he did his work bravely and is at rest. So dying in 1872, there's a few um, comments yet, and then we can square off for questions. It's really left, and think of 1872, think of all the, the reconciliation and the reunions that are to come in the 1880s during the 25th anniversary of the war. Meade's already passed. So it's really left to the men who served with him, and particularly the Philadelphians and the Pennsylvanians, to craft his legacy. They will be the ones that will initiate monuments to be erected to George Meade. Here's one in Philly. This is the first Meade monument to go up in 1887. This is the one at Gettysburg. This goes up in 1896. You can see this is a real early photo because it doesn't have the plaque on the side that describes Meade. And also has this little keep off uh, war department, keep off the ground, keep off the mound. So that one goes up 1896. Now it's important for the Pennsylvanians to have Meade recognized as the victor of Gettysburg. So he's got his monument in Philly, he's got his monument in Gettysburg. 
but they see monuments going up in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. This is the dedication to the Grant Monument. And Meade supporters thinks that he deserves a monument in Washington, too. And particularly, and this is interesting, um, considering what's going on in the last couple days and the couple weeks and years, the Robert E. Lee Monument that's in Statuary Hall really outraged the Philadelphians. And they think, why does Lee have a monument in Washington, D.C., and George Meade doesn't? So the Philadelphians undertake an effort to get a monument to the commander, their commander, George Meade, placed in Washington. It takes a lot of years to get this done, a lot of political bureaucracy that they have to navigate, but they do it. And in the dedication of the Meade Monument in Washington, here's what it looks like today in the 1920s. Um, maybe a weird kind of monument, it's allegorical. This is Meade stepping into the future, you know, the, the warrior, the image, it's, it's one in allegory. It's just a few hundred yards initially from the Grant Monument, but it's relocated during the Vietnam War a little bit further down Pennsylvania Avenue. So I'll leave you, uh, because I'm right at 45 minutes, I think, I'll leave you with a comment or a thought about Meade from James Biddle. Biddle is staffer from Philadelphia. I'm confident that the verdict of impartial history will do him justice. I'm humbled by the Meade work before me. This is a enormous task to write a biography of such an important Civil War general, but I hope that if my work provides a little bit of detail and nuance, and indeed impartial history to George Gordon Meade, I will have done a good job and made an important contribution to Meade's legacy and to better understanding this important commander in the Army of the Potomac. I think well, I, I can um, stop my screen share now, Mark, and I will yes. pivot it back to you Okay. And we can see what what questions you guys have. I'm sure I've talked well, quite enough for everybody. Some here. Oh no, you could you could go on <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, but, um, especially since I've been doing diving into meat so much. But we did have a question uh, during your talk, uh, and I'll start with that, and then everybody else can jump in. Uh, uh, this is not my question; it was related yeah. to the chat. Uh, 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 there was a comment and a question. If Meade was such a middling student, how did he get into the engineers? Yeah, I think I'd have to double check that. I think he's 18th in his class. Um, he's 18 in his class, and he ends up becoming in in the topographical engineers. As you say, this is the finest branch of the U.S. Army. They produce people like Andrew Humphreys. Um, so that's the branch that he's going to be in through the antebellum. Um, period. So middling, uh, mediocre, maybe too harsh, harsh of a word, but he's not at the top of his class, um, middle, middle of his class. All righty. Uh, the question about Biddle on the screen too, I think, I think that is true. Um, the Biddle family is a prominent Philadelphian family also, if they're in banking, um, that I'm not 100% sure if that's the James Biddle lineage or not, but Biddle's papers, um, multiple family papers of Biddle at um, the Historical Society in Philadelphia. 
um, another prominent Philadelphian family. Do you just want me to read them off the chat, Mark? Do you yeah, want to do because I'm not I'm not seeing them, so I, I'm definitely going to have to. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to rely on. Okay. Um, so the question about Meade and the Army of the Potomac during the Overland Campaign, this is a good one. Um, thank you for all of these, all three of them. Mike, Jenny, you guys, Scott, thank you for the questions. Um, the moment that Grant comes east, he goes and he meets with Meade. And Meade offers to step back, um, resign in effect. Uh, Meade is expecting Grant to put someone from the west in command and grant doesn't he keeps me in of course because he wants someone who's familiar with the army of the potomac and grant later writes that meade's offer to step back was in, endearing to him that it revealed a lot about meade's character and their relationship meade and grant's relationship during the war is uh, uh, volatile might be too hard of a word, but it certainly has its ups and downs. There are times in 1864 that Meade's hopeful to get an independent command. Um, just to add to that before um, it slips my mind, in 1864, when they're thinking about this second front in the Shenandoah Valley, um, Meade is considered for that, that he would have an independent command, but ultimately that's going to go to Sheridan, as we know, and Sheridan and Meade's relationship. Um, a little acrimonious. Meade is very sensitive to command. He's very sensitive to, to rank and feels slighted at so many turns by not getting promotions fast enough or an independent command. Um, but there's no doubt that Meade plays an important role through the duration of the war, if, if a complicated one. Um, what's next? Um, so Jim has a question <laughs> about the pursuit. Yeah, I can, I, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. The pursuit is interesting to me because it's framed in a way that me doesn't do anything. If you read and follow, um, blogs and stuff about the civil war online, or you read some civil war histories, the battle of Gettysburg ends. And then these men kind of fall into a vacuum. Meade and the Army of the Potomac is stagnant. And that is absolutely not true. Meade will put the Army of the Potomac on pursuit beginning on July the 5th. And from the 5th until the 14th, they will maneuver. Lee will go down to the Potomac River through places like Hagerstown and, and Williamsport. And Meade's men will catch up. And the big moment for me in the pursuit is that on July the 12th, the Potomac River, it rains after the Battle of Gettysburg, and the Potomac River is swollen so much that Lee has to pause until he can get his men across safely. And on July the 12th, Meade will hold a council of war. And this is a rabbit hole I've gotten into. He brings his generals together and he solicits their advice on what to do. Should he attack the Confederates with their backs against the Potomac River, or should they wait, should they pause? And he lets his generals vote. 
And in the course of the conversation, in the vote, the majority of the generals say, do not attack. And the consequence of that is that on July 13, it's foggy and kind of misty. Meade sends out this light reconnaissance, kind of feels the Confederate lines and says, one more day, July 14, we'll attack at the morning. And by the time the Union Army is ready to attack on the 14th, what has Robert E. Lee done? He's moved his men back into Virginia because the water of the Potomac River has receded that allows him to do so. So the, the question here for me, and this is what I argue in my book, I'm a military historian with a Civil War specialty. I teach our Vietnam class. I teach our World War II class. I'm teaching World War I. I do all of our wars, American wars. In American military history, it's really difficult to find an example of a general who can win a battle and then immediately pivot and launch a successful pursuit. And that's what the Northern public in Lincoln is asking me to do. If you read accounts from Union soldiers during the pursuit, they're exhausted. They fought for three days. I mean, gosh, the Sixth Corps, even to get to Gettysburg, the Sixth Corps marches 32 miles to get to Gettysburg. They fought a three-day battle. Their supplies are low and they're exhausted. So to have them maneuver and pivot quickly to fight this culminating battle is something that only generals like Napoleon can achieve. And that's very rarely seen in the Civil War, to think about a battle that ends in complete destruction of the enemy. That was a could long, I, <laughs> that was a long a, answer to that. The pursuit yeah. gets me. Could I just have a quick follow-up on that one? Yeah, I read, please. Uh, someplace uh, where, you know, where the logistics were a factor, uh, namely, uh, Slocum, I know, was complaining his people didn't have shoes. Yep. Uh, that they did need to a certain extent uh, refit. Yeah, absolutely. The 11th Corps writes, um, Howard writes that half of his men do not have shoes. Their horses don't have food. Um, literally, and Kent Brown writes about this in his book, um, the Union Army loses 10,000 horses and mules, um, many of them starving to death. There's no food for them. Incredibly difficult. Um, let me get down to the list. Next, yeah, you've got a lot um, why more is Meade born in Cadiz, Spain? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Meade's father is a merchant. Um, so he's engaging in trade, um, particularly this is 1815 with the Napoleonic Wars going on. Um, he's selling different materials into Western Europe and Cadiz, um, Spain. So his dad's a merchant. That's why he's born in Cadiz. And Meade is um, just about two years old when his family moves back to Philadelphia. And his dad ends up uh, virtually bankrupt with some of these failed business adventures. Um, next, this is from Scott. It says, what was Meade's relationship with Lincoln and Halleck like? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, the easiest way to answer that is maybe to come back to the pursuit. After the pursuit and the Gettysburg campaign ends along the banks of the Potomac River, Lincoln is outraged. And you might be familiar with the unsent letter that Lincoln crafts to Meade. It's, um, it's a little condescending 
He says, dear general, I, I do not believe you realize your golden opportunity is gone. He, he admonishes me for not delivering this culminating blow. Lincoln doesn't send it, but Meade wouldn't have been surprised by the rhetoric. Meade is so frustrated with Washington that he offers his resignation, kind of in a, a fit of temperamental display of character, he offers his resignation. It's not accepted, of course, but Meade realizes that command of the Army of the Potomac is not to be desired. And if you think about commanders prior to Meade's appointment, McClellan, relieved of command. Burnside, relieved of command. Hooker, relieved of command. Let's add Pope, too, for Second Manassas, relieved of command. And Meade writes about this, and he realizes that unless you perform nearly flawlessly, Lincoln and the Northern public will find you or, or cast you aside. So he doesn't want to command the army for starters. And he thinks that Lincoln has unreasonable expectations often. Um, that really weighs on him. He says about resigning multiple times, even through 64, um, with the Overland campaign. So it's volatile. Uh, in short, it's volatile. Brian has a question about Meade's campaign for the fall of 63. Yeah, Mine Run is a good reference point here. Mine Run to me is the the Gettysburg campaign phase two. And Mine Run is November of 63 when Meade again has an opportunity to attack the Confederates. And they've dug in. Um, there's a little bit left, if you get down in Culpeper County, you can see some of the Bristow Station mine run stuff. A little bit left of that. And Meade again decides not to attack the Confederates at mine run. So it's, it's kind of this campaign. It's, it's aborted in the end. And the difference here is that Meade's soldiers in November of 63 applaud him for not attacking. Um, Charles Wainwright, who has the great book, you know, he's the first Corps artillery officer. Um, Wainwright says that Meade displays, um, his words, moral courage in not attacking at Mine Run. Because by the fall of 63, the Union soldiers have seen enough frontal assaults that are futile, they fail, that they respect a commander that has discretion and values their lives. So 63, 64 is kind of climatic, anticlimactic, and um, frustrated in a lot of ways, which makes the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War testimonies all the more poignant because it looks like Meade's army is lethargic. They're not doing enough down through Virginia. Jenny, your question, did Meade remain friends with McClellan during 64? Oh man, that's a great question. Meade and McClellan are two peas in a pot. They're Philadelphians, they are conservative, and they are Democrat. Uh, Meade is a Democrat. He votes, he does not vote in 1864, the, the election that McClellan runs in, but McClellan's policies on how the war should be fought are very much in line with Meade's at the outset that it's a policy of conciliation. Southern civilians <clears throat> should be left on the side. Um, 
Meade laments McClellan's removal. I mentioned that in the presentation. Uh, McClellan will send Meade a note of congratulations after Gettysburg. Um, he gets a note of congratulations from McClellan. In 1863, September, it's clear, it's becoming clear that McClellan is going to be the Democratic candidate in 1864. He's going to run against Lincoln. And in the fall of 1863, the Union Army starts fundraising. This is fascinating. They start fundraising for McClellan. And there's this really fascinating moment called the McClellan Testimonial, where Union officers take up a collection for McClellan. And Union officers, they um, have this, it's kind of itemized how much money you're supposed to donate. Um, it starts at like 25 bucks, you know, that's $25 is like $500 equivalent today. And they take up this collection for McClellan. Well, there are Republicans in the Army of the Potomac, and they are outraged that the Army of the Potomac is fundraising for McClellan. And those Republicans go to Lincoln, and Lincoln will call some of these fundraisers up to Washington and basically say, what the heck is going on? And they stop the testimonial, and the men get their money back. It's not discussed that much, but I mean, 2020, hello, election, you know, political election year and money and fundraising. They're doing that in the Union Army in 1864. And Meade did it too. Meade did it too. Um, oh, Dennis. Oh, no. Do you want to get me going on Sickles? Didn't Meade give clear enough orders to Sickles on the morning of the second? Yes. Um, <clears throat> that's like a whole other one hour talk. Meade's orders to Sickles to extend the left of the Union line. Um, debated if they're clear enough. I'm actually working on this now, arguing yes. Um, Sickles knew where his men were to be. He's to hold a position that was occupied by John Geary of the 12th Corps. And Geary's men, um, basically from the northern part of Little Round Top up towards where the New York Auxiliary Monument is at today. Um, that's where Sickles is to be. And David Burney puts his division there near seven o'clock on the morning of July the 2nd. So they're there. Sickles will argue through the afternoon, he visits Meade. Meade will send staff officers. Sickles will send, send staff officers to try to get that reconciled. Um, but in what I'm reading, and this is a huge controversy, um, Sickles disobeyed orders, and it almost completely destroyed the Union Army at Gettysburg. That's a great, that's a great question. And you can't disentangle Meade from Dan Sickles. Um, Oh, Mike, yeah, this is a good question. Coming back to Meade's command in the Army of the Potomac. Yeah, Reynolds turns it down. And then let me read the rest of this. Um, political interference from DC prevented the Army of the Potomac. Okay, so when it's clear that Meade, let me back up, when it's clear that Lincoln is going to have to replace Hooker, Reynolds is invited to Washington and Reynolds never leaves a primary account of this. What we know about the Reynolds 
Lincoln conversation in June of 63 comes from Reynolds' relative writing about this after the war. So it's secondhand and then decades later. And she claims um, that Reynolds tells her he was offered command of the Army of the Potomac and he turns it down because he wasn't given carte blanche. Reynolds comes back to camp and Meade meets with Meade and Meade writes that Reynolds told him that he was offered command of the Army of the Potomac. He turned it down and recommended Meade. <laughs> recommended Meade. So any chance that Reynolds' views affected Meade or chance that Reynolds' views affected Lincoln, if in fact Reynolds recommended Meade, we know that others do. Um, Darius Couch, Cooch, depending on how you like your name pronounced, recommends him. Um, so does Slocum and Sedgwick. So Lincoln's hearing from different people that Meade is going to be a sound choice. When Meade finally gets the army command on June 28, Reynolds visits him. Um, this is recounted in a story in Battles and Leaders, um, um, the centennial volume. Reynolds goes and visits him. He puts on his dress uniform and he goes and he congratulates Meade. Um, Meade writes that he kind of chastised Reynolds when he sees him. And he's like, man, I wish you would have taken command of this army. And Reynolds says, well, um, it's, in, it's in good hands. Let's see, what is next? You guys have great questions. You're clearly a, a well-read Civil War group. Did Meade have any contact with Lee before the war? I haven't seen even in Mexico um, that he had any contact with Lee. Now he does at Appomattox go and visit Lee on the 10th um, and, it, and it kind of expresses regards for him. Hmm. What's next? Have I overlooked anybody's question? Anything else? There's so much oh. to talk about with Meade. It's a big topic. Um, yeah, I, I, of the Army of the Potomac is enormous. This is yeah, a monumental I, figure in our Civil War history. Yeah, I have a few things I would prefer to let everybody else talk first, but okay. uh, just a, a couple a couple things. Uh, one is about the cavalry. You know, every all, all discussions around cavalry uh, generally have to do with Confederate cavalry and and Jeb Stewart's rides. But I think we all know that the Union cavalry performed very well uh, during the Gettysburg campaign excellently. But I'm, I'm concerned more about after the battle, what, how much control did Meade have over his cavalry? And what would you say, uh, how would you evaluate the performance of the cavalry uh, yeah. after July 3rd? <clears throat> That's a good question, Mark. My assessment of Meade and the, the pursuit and how he operates or how the cavalry operates is that it's disjointed. It's disjointed. It's multi-pronged, moving in different and uncoordinated ways. If you read a little bit about the pursuit, you'll probably read more about Kilpatrick and his guys who are nipping at the heels. They fight at Monterey Pass just days after Gettysburg, while other units are already off against the Confederate trains. He's got 
cavalry pursuing the Confederate wagons. He's got guys down along the Potomac River already. So they're disjointed. And what, what I argue in that pursuit piece, and this will be in the book, the most effective arm in a pursuit has got to be the cavalry. It has got to be the cavalry. Study Napoleon. Napoleon can pursue an army because he has an effective cavalry. He drives the enemy forces after a battle of Jena 250 miles because his cavalry drive him. 250 miles. So you have to have a coordinated, quick, ready to go, unified, concentrated effort. And Meade and Pleasanton, they don't do it, they don't have it. The best example to compare is Napoleon. Can you imagine driving your enemy 250 miles after battle? I mean, they'd be down to Richmond. But Kilpatrick's not doing that. So, uh, but uh, what about Pleasanton's role more, more specifically? I, I would I would say the same, and, and I'm I'm not really a fan of Pleasanton. <laughs> um, I think he's he's antagonistic to Meade. But that aside, I think he performs um, mediocre during the Gettysburg campaign. He leaves the left flank which was one of Sickles' gripes, um, unoccupied on July the 2nd. He pulls his guys off the, the left flank, and this is Buford, and he sends them to, um, down into Maryland without putting any men in place. And I think he acts as limited and, and narrow-minded in the pursuit. Because I, I uh, think, I guess my big, my big point, and I won't belabor this, but my big point is if you need, if you want a pursuit to be effective, that you've got to get your cavalry, look at Sheridan and the Appomattox campaign, your cavalry has got to get ahead of the belligerent infantry. They have to get out in front of them. That's why Appomattox works, because Sheridan can do it. Pleasanton is nowhere near doing that in the Gettysburg campaign. And that puts Meade always behind, always behind. I see that Scott has a question, so I'll hold off for anything else until you answer that. Um, why weren't Meade more effective in following up on orders issued at Petersburg? What are, what are you thinking, Scott? What do you have in, in mind there about Petersburg particularly? I know there's a, are you talking about kind of the delay to move in to capture the city when it's kind of vulnerable at the beginning? Yes, okay. Um, I'll be honest, this is the part of the Mead biography that I'm about to dive into. So in terms of like specifics, I probably wouldn't quite want to cast my lot on that. But I think we'll find that Mead performs a little bit better in the Overland campaign um, in general. If you've read Will Green's big, gigantic book on Petersburg, he takes a pretty good assessment of Mead also. I'll see if my my research is in line with him or contrarian to that. Okay, then oh, if the, here we go. We got a bunch of questions now. You got more? Um, okay, then I'll hold up my. Oh, we're on the we're back on the pursuit. Yes, the short answer to that is yes. Corps commanders think that Lee's fortifications at Falling Waters were too strong to attack. Yes, that's a great point. Um, if you read the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War testimony, multiple Union officers say that. Multiple ones do. Hancock says it, Sedgwick says it, Governor K. Warren says it, that had the Confederate position been attacked, that the Union Army would have been repulsed. Um, Wainwright writes after the Confederates abandoned their trenches, and Wainwright, Charles Wainwright goes up and looks at them, 
and he says the same thing. He said that these are some of the most sophisticated fortifications that he has seen to that point in the war. There's a professor that teaches at St. James College, which is a little tiny college right outside of Falling Waters. And he writes, and this is these are contemporary accounts, how thorough and intricate the Confederate lines are at Falling Waters, that the, the Union Army could have been decimated. And then the bottom line, Meade doesn't want to risk it. His orders are to stay between the Union Army and Washington, D.C., so he justifies not attacking, yes, because his com corps commander said not to, but secondly, he's come off this great victory at Gettysburg. You have to recognize that and still be true to the original mission that Halleck gave you, which is to keep DC protected from the invading Confederates. If you get down towards Falling Waters, there's some remnants of these fortifications left um, you can see a little bit, but absolutely a consideration. And the same is true at Mine Run. You know, the same is true there, too. That's a fascinating part of Meade's leadership. Could you comment on what happened at the Widow Leicester House on the night of the second? Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask that question myself. Is there anybody other than Alan Guelzo who thinks uh, that uh, Meade wanted to retreat? Dan Sickles, <laughs> uh, Sickles, yeah. The the Council of War at the Leicester House is fascinating. That's July the second at about nine o'clock. Meade brings his corps commanders together. Now keep in mind this is the first opportunity that he has to meet his corps commanders all at once. You know he's taking command on the twenty eighth. They've been fighting for two days, and he wants to gain a conversation. Tell me the strength of your men. Tell me what your casualty rates are. Tell me what what your resources, your materials like. And then the conversation starts. It's informal. But then at some point, Dan Butterfield decides to make the questions, make the conversation revolve around three questions. And Butterfield crafts these three questions and has the men vote. And they vote the junior officers go first. So John Gibbon, who is representing the second corps, votes first. Um, and basically, the three questions are, um, should we stay? And if we stay, should it be offensive or defensive? And then if we stay, how long? How long can we be away from our supply base back in Maryland? So they vote on the three. And then in the end, uh, Meade very, very famously says, such then is the decision because his corps commanders have decided to stay and fight. That's great. Now, Gelzo, in his book on Meade, and he's no fan of George Meade, interprets that to say that Meade's corps commanders pushed him into staying and fight. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Prior to the Council of War, Meade will send a dispatch down to Halleck. It's in the official records for crying out loud. And he says in that dispatch that he's prepared to stay at fight in Gettysburg unless something changes his mind, unless something intervenes. But it's clear, um, in my mind at least, he's already made up his mind and the council just confirmed it. The council confirmed to stay and fight. That's a great question. My follow-up to that is, because uh, I, I guess I framed the question wrong, in conjunction with, with Marshall's, it, does, does the Civil War community, historians, accept Guelzo's 
approach or do you think you're on solid ground with the rest of your profession? Um, the consensus is Gelzo is a top-notch historian, right? We can't dispute that. His work on Lincoln has won some of the field's biggest and best prizes. His Gettysburg book raises eyebrows because it raises questions and controversies. And he has interpretations that the sources just don't jive, right? The sources just don't support. And here I'm speaking of Mead, his interpretation of Mead. His sources just don't quite support what he's arguing. There's no doubt that anyone that's working on George Mead now, myself included, has to recognize Galzo and his interpretations and agree with them or disagree with them. Um, I will be disagreeing with him a lot. Some of, some of those things he said were striking. I have one last question, unless others do. This has also to do with the pursuit. And I'm wondering about the coordination of forces. Uh, the, there, there were, I believe, forces on the, on, the, on, the, on the southern side, on the Virginia side of the Potomac, which destroyed the Ponton Bridge. Yeah. Uh, you know, so in conjunction with high water, Lee could not cross. Yeah. What was Meade's ability? Did Meade have any ability to control those forces that could have interdicted uh, uh, the crossing of the river? And, or did he have any uh, uh, control over those troops uh, that uh, uh, were commanded by Kelly? I don't know if he was a Colonel or a General. I think he was a Colonel uh, that uh, Thomas Ryan talks so much about in his book, Lee is Trapped. Uh, did Meade have enough control over these forces to have, uh, made an impact on the uh, ultimate retreat? Yeah, I think the, the maybe the most important force that could be added to him are the ones around um, French's or um, Frederick, right? <clears throat> the, the kind of the, the, the ones that were at Harper's Ferry that are still kind of lingering and not yet allocated. And Halleck rushes these extra men to me. So he starts the campaign with about 90,000. He takes 20 plus thousand casualties, but then he gets these infusion of extra troops that puts him close-ish to where he started the campaign. But when we talk about numbers, looking at those guys on paper puts them on par to where he started, but these are not veteran troops. So what would they have accomplished? What would they have done? What impact could they have made? I think there's a lot of what ifs on the pursuit. But, but, but was there no ability, was there no capability on the federal side of putting uh, forces on the southern side of the Potomac? Not probably from, from Meade's army. Um, I guess that again would have been the role of the cavalry to get in front of the Confederate forces and essentially envelop them. Whether that's Buford, who was down there, um, Kilpatrick, that has to be the role of the cavalry. And instead of sending them out on multiple prongs, you have to get ahead of the, the infantry. But, but again, the, nobody on the southern side. I'm sorry, Marshall, go ahead. Doesn't your uh, reference to the, to, uh, the meeting at the Woodrow Leicester House as a council of war do a disservice to me? Using that term? Yeah, that, you, the term "council of war." Yeah, well, I think that characterizes it as something it wasn't. 
<laughs> yeah, um, and terminology matters. Now, Mead says they're not councils. They're, um, you know, they're meetings, right? Because a council of war is something different than just a gathering with your generals. So does that suggest uncertainty on his part? Does that show weak leadership because he needs a council of war? Lee has councils of war during the Gettysburg campaign. But you're right, like the term matters. Is it a actual council of war? Thank Lee you. will have to defend those councils during the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Um, they push him pretty hard and ask, why are you having three of these? Three, one on July 2nd, one on July 4th, and one on July the 12th. And he says he's new to command. I'm new to command. So he wants the input from his subordinates. I'm going to argue in the book, um, partly I think the councils and the vote are a reflection of the volatility in the Union Army High Command. He's, if, if any of you are in leadership positions, you want, you want buy-in. You want buy-in. Are you, are you going to have an extensive discussion of the uh, committee's work? That's a whole chapter. Yeah. Yeah, that's a separate chapter. Well, right now, that chapter is about 60 pages. So it's pretty extensive. It's going to have to be trimmed down. But yeah, that's, that's a huge moment for Meade's career. Well, also did not, uh, me, me did not have the same number of corps commanders, the same personnel on July 12th that he did on July oh, yeah. 1st. And that, right. was that a factor? Well, I think that's, I'm not defending Meade at the Council of War on mm -hmm. the 12th. The, the corps command significantly has changed, as you identify. By that point, John Reynolds is gone. He's replaced um, by Wadsworth at the Council. Winfield Scott Hancock is gone, the second most trusted subordinate. Dan Sickles is gone, which is great, but he's replaced by William French. Who in the world is going to solicit advice from William French, right? So he's got this mishmash of corps commanders at the council who are inexperienced to that level, and he defers to them. It is, you know... Being the commander of the Army of the Potomac, being the leader, means you need to lead. And I think you have to lead men who are inexperienced and new to command. That's why history is fun, because we can debate and talk about this stuff. And we have the benefit of hindsight, of course. That's, that's, that's always very good. And, and uh, I have read some accounts where, I mean, you could find, I think, differing accounts of what the... Uh, the uh, uh, opinions were among the rank and file. Uh, weren't there some who would have preferred to just fight there at Falling Waters? Yep. yep, it's it's really mixed and divided. And I'm trying to capture that in my chapter, you know, what the men wanted to do. They felt like they fought the Confederate Army for three days. They had this big victory at Gettysburg. Let's just, you know, one more time, give me one opportunity to deliver that death blow. Some of them want that, but then some of them also, particularly when they see the, the lines, applaud Meade for not attacking. Well, uh, I could ask Jennifer questions all night, but I don't wanna do that. Uh, are there any other, uh, any other questions from, from uh, our members? Uh, because- Yes, uh, I, I have one. Uh, 
because I went to law school in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. Oh. I'm just wondering if your students are uh, reflective of Theodore White's characterization of Oklahoma and making the making of the president. He called it the Hawk and Bible State. <laughs> and I'm wondering if your students reflect that philosophy. So I've lived in Oklahoma since 2018. I took the job at OSU in October. And when I moved out there, I was mo really in the forefront of my mind. I was curious of how the students would respond to the Civil War. You know, I'm a Pennsylvanian. I'm a Marylander. It's it's. I grew up with it. It's at, at every corner. And Oklahoma is a long way away from Gettysburg. Right. Um, so I was worried about that. I've been real surprised how enthused they are about the Civil War, like Civil War and <coughs> Lee and Gettysburg. You know, these are far flung places for them, and they just want to know more. They have this insatiable appetite to learn more about the Civil War and military history overall. I've got a great cadre of students who love studying war and war in society and all the dimensions of it. So I'm, I'm real jazzed about that. And I'm teaching Civil War this spring and I'm particularly excited to get into that conversation, um, particularly with all the, the turmoil the last couple of days and get in the classroom and talk about that. Yes, I saw your uh... I saw your uh, Twitter comment when I was doing some digging this afternoon. Oh yeah, you know about the picture of the Confederate yeah. flag. Yeah. I mean, I've I've had Confederate flags in my house. I took my sons <laughs> to Gettysburg and other other places, many other places, uh, uh, and we had you know third. I had the third uh, Confederate national flag up in my house, but uh, I don't know where they've gone. Maybe the boys took them, but. Uh, you know, these days that 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 was a that that image was was rather that was that was very troubling. I think to lots and lots of people. Uh, I feel sorry for the flag in one way. It's just a flag. It's been misused. But uh, but that that was uh, I shared your feelings uh, in the comment that you made. Yeah, I'm going to show that image in my first PowerPoint slide, my very first day of class. Like, this is why the Civil War matters. We need to have knowledge about the Civil War. It's everywhere around us everywhere around us yeah it's uh yeah it's it's it, 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 it and it uh you know it uh I, I don't know if it ever goes away but certainly the discussions are are very very important and it's good to hear that your students are uh are that way you know for, for anyone who's on this uh in this program who was at vicksburg when we were there in 2019 at the cairo and saw that little girl, that young girl from Texas, when I told her group that the man walking up the walk was the guy who found the Cairo, and she ran down, practically knocked Ed, Ed down and start hugging him because she was a 13-year-old girl from Texas who loved Ed Bars, who loved the Civil War, and just loved everything about it. I was, Ed told me, he said, you know, I got a lot of, I've received a lot of awards in my life, but not never one like that. So. As long as there are people around like that, you're going to get some good students. Well, what was your comment on Twitter? Um, I've ca I captured the the image of the man walking with Confederate flag through, and I I commented that 360,000 Union soldiers fought and died to keep that flag out of the nation's capital. Yep. Yes, I'm with you. Very fine comment. 
Um, I'm not a huge Twitter fan, but um, if you're interested in following me on Twitter once in a while, um, Dr. Jen Murray, you can, usually it's a, a platform for history and conversations like that and Auburn football when appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to call you on that day they played Northwestern, but things weren't going very well. So I, oh, I, put, yeah. off, what an I put off the call. <laughs> yeah, what an embarrassment. <laughs> that was not too good. Uh, but uh, a Facebook page. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Um, Jen Murray, you can find me on Facebook. So I'm, I'm uh, kind of use that as a platform to talk about my work. You'll see a lot of Mead comments on there and, you know, Mead this day in history and, and stuff like that. Photos of my dog on occasion, but yeah. <laughs> she knows. <laughs> and I should add for the group, I mean, uh, Jennifer's written a lot of articles. Uh, you can find them on her, on her CV. Uh, and if you look back in your, uh, I don't subscribe to Civil War Times or any of those, but if you get Civil War History or the, uh, the, the North Carolina Press uh, periodical, uh, she's written multiple book reviews. And uh, so we see her, uh, we see her uh, in many, many places. Uh, good to, uh, it will be good following. I don't know, is there another question here I see? Something popping up, or am I wrong? There was another question that was on the screen a little while ago about your experience as a park ranger at, at Gettysburg. Oh, um, okay. cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. From John, yes. Um, <laughs> what did you like most and least about being a park ranger there? Um, I started working there when I was 20 years old as an undergrad. So for me, <laughs> what I liked most about being there was being on the battlefield. Being there to talk about Little Round Top while standing on Little Round Top or talk about Culp's Hill standing on Culp's Hill. And the opportunity to stand on the landscape and talk about the Civil War, to pay to do it, the thousands of people was priceless. And it, it started as an internship and then it sent me on this career. I mean, who would have thought that I'd end up doing this as a profession? So I can't say enough good stuff about my time at Gettysburg. It certainly influenced me as an academic i don't know if there was anything am I, oh you know what i like least um the ticks ticks in pennsylvania in the summertime <laughs> golly um you know just like having to feel like you have to pick them off and examine every inch when you are done walking across they freak me out that's what i like least about it wasn't it just the opportunity to work with hartwick oh yeah um so he was my supervisor um, I started with Eric Campbell. Eric was my supervisor for the longest time. And then Scott was, and I don't know, um, you know, there's no one better to work with than Eric Campbell and Scott Hartwig and certainly emulate my interpretation in their ways in a lot of ways. And, and they're top shelf historians and still good friends. I send some of my mead work out to Scott. Um, he read my Antietam piece for me and, and provide great comments. So yeah, absolutely lucky to work with him i had the opportunity i had the opportunity to work with dr tilburg and that was oh wow that was a long time ago before you were born but <laughs> he was he was amazing wow yeah that's great that's cool did you so you work for the park service there too no he and i were working on a project together okay a research wow. project wow related to the to the book that he never wrote well, that's cool. Oh. But Marshall, weren't you uh, an interpretive uh, 
guide at Gettysburg? Uh, well, I guided, at Gettysburg. I, guided, I guided tours at Gettysburg. Oh, okay. But I never lived there, so I couldn't take out enough tours to be a ranger. Hmm. <clears throat> Marshall knows Gettysburg pretty well. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Well, if there are no more questions, uh, I, there may be more because I see the numbers keep. Uh, I, I see some thank yous in the comments section. Oh, so, okay, yeah. um, abso absolutely. Let me thank you all yeah. for having me and spending yes, your Friday yes. night talking about George Meade. I think, yeah, I think this is the longest we've ever gone on with Q and A. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, when Bob Stoller was president and he had Nora Tatone, and I was so. I was like taken aback because she only talked for about 25 minutes. So I thought, what the heck are we going to do for the rest of the night? But then the Q&A went on for 45 or 50 minutes and we filled the rest of the time very easily. I had no idea people were so uh, interested in uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the John Wilkes Booth and the assassination. It, it kind of blew me away. But it was it was I'm, I'm sure Bob remembers that uh, event. It was mostly it was, it was mostly about about his brother. Yeah, it was about uh, the uh, it, my thoughts be bloody. A great book. I've, right. I've read the book. Yeah, a very a very good book. And psychological uh, study of the fact that he that he John Wilkes was inferior to his brother's acting ability. Right. 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 Well, mm. anyway, uh, again, we we could go on all night. It's such a fascinating subject because, of course, Gettysburg. The controversies about Gettysburg will seemingly never stop. Uh, I, I look forward to. Uh, uh, Looking at or reading your your book on uh, on Gettysburg, uh, I, I I'm a, I, I as so many of us are very interested in uh, uh, the environmental aspects, you know. So you're uh, the, when I've read yeah, the when of your do book, you think the book is going to come out. So oh, I'm hopeful yeah. to be done with it next next like in a year and then send it to my press so it's out for the 2023 20, year for the 160th. Um, I'm about halfway done with my chapters. I have about 300 some pages written so far. So I need to get into the Overland campaign and, and then I'm, I'm done. But, it, but, but the Gettysburg looks very, very, book looks interesting because that, that's something up the alley of lots of us, uh, the landscape aspects, et cetera. Yeah. But in any event, uh, before we close, I'd like to remind everyone uh, next month on Lincoln's birthday, we will have uh, Leslie Goddard, uh giving us uh clara barton uh mm -hmm. leslie has performed uh, uh, uh clara barton many times but never for our group as she and i uh discussed uh earlier and so i want i've always i've wanted to do that ever since i led the antietam campaign uh i have a great interest in clara barton so we're going to look forward to leslie uh who always provides us a terrific program i don't know if anybody <clears throat> saw her uh her uh uh her uh, suffragette uh, uh, program. All of a sudden, I can't I can't remember the the uh, the uh, the suffragette's name, but she will be on on two twelve twenty one, which will be the two hundred twelfth birthday of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So that uh, we'll try to figure out all those ones and twos uh, by then. And uh, I'll say good night and thank you to Mark Kunis for hosting as always. Terrific program. Thank you, Jennifer. You bet. Thanks, guys. Have a good evening. Have a good weekend. Thank you.